Hello, this is Simon from Jolly Fuckers. You're listening to the Punks and Pubs podcast. Thanks for the tongue twister there, Liam. Anyway, here's a recent song of ours, Secret Pentagon Leaker, and if you like it, you can find us on Bandcamp, Spotify, and all those other lovely places. Enjoy the show. Cheers. We do not fear you. We are not afraid of what you have to say. But you fear us. You fear the truth. This is the Punks in Pubs podcast. Uh, my name is Liam Bird. I thought I'd get on the hellos. How are you doing out of the way? Uh, and, and this, guys, very quickly off the bat, is the last episode of this season. Normally, uh, I have a break over the summer. I go and do some festivals. I fill up with some interviews. Uh, and yeah, that didn't happen. COVID said no. Uh, so I've decided to continue to do the podcast throughout the summer. Uh, and I'm going to take September and October off. But we were back towards the end of October. Uh, and you never know, we might be able to do some interviews in some pubs. I don't bet on it but you never know uh, obviously at a social distancing of course but while we're away you can still support and get your punks in pubs fix by picking yourself up some punks in pubs t-shirts 
all ethically sourced, made from organic cotton, and I deliver globally. Well, not me, obviously, some other person, uh, but they'll deliver to your door, so that's nice. Uh, also, you get a free sticker because I like to treat you right. Head on over to our Etsy page and support this DIY podcast. You can find it by searching Punks in Pubs podcast etsy into google and you will see the link just click on that or you can search this episode description uh, there'll be a link in that just click that and again wallop you will see the t-shirts like i said this is the last episode of the season and we're going out with a bang because episode 63 sees me cross off a dream interview name from my list Episode 63 is me speaking to FC St. Pauli. For you who might be unfamiliar with FC St. Pauli, they are a German football club who has deep roots within the punk subculture. And I mean, fuck, this club's foundations are built on the punk ethos. For me, I'm a huge football fan. uh, So this is a dream interview for me. If already you're like, "Mm, I fucking hate sport, stick with it. And I mean that. This is an interesting chat about how punk has the the range to be able to essentially change a club's ethos by bringing in people with the the same ideology, the same like-mindedness, and they managed to change a football club around in a period of 10 years. But I'm jumping ahead of myself. Let me just explain a little bit more about the club. So FC St. Pauli play in the German second division. Pre-COVID, they were pulling in crowds of nearly 30,000 fans uh, for their home games. My original plan was actually to go over to Hamburg, that's where they're based in Germany, uh, and uh, go and watch a game and then speak to a club rep about the history of the club and its links with punk rock. Sadly, like most things COVID, they said fuck you, and it didn't happen. So I continued to bug the club because I really wanted to do an interview. Uh, After a little while, they said, Liam shut the fuck up we got the right person for you Uh, that person is my guest for today's podcast his name is Sven Brooks and you are about to discover he is punk as fuck so we talk about his background in punk we talk about the history of the club St. Pauli and um, yeah it's just a really interesting interview in my opinion uh, but I hope you also find it enjoyable as well off the bat I apologize to any St. Pauli fans Throughout the interview, I don't know why, I just kept referencing the club as FC poorly and dropping the saint. I don't know if that's sacrilege. I don't know if I'm now on a blacklist for this club. I hope to get over there soon, so please let me come and watch a game of football. Uh, But uh, apologies for dropping the saint. The real name is FC St. Parley, not FC FC Parley, as I kept saying. I'm waffling. I'll be back after our chat to wrap things up. But without any further delay, enjoy my chat with Sven. Well, that's why it's all set up right Football theory 
everything. I'm staring down my laptop. Uh, we can't be in a pub. We can't be face to face. But um, I'm very happy to say that I have a gentleman who works at a football club, which I believe people would probably perceive as probably the most punk football club in the world, FC St. Pauli. His name is Sven. Sven, how are you, mate? Yeah, everything is fine. Hello. Hello. <laughs> so if you just we're going to talk about your own background in punk because the club kind of put you forward to be the person to speak to me about punk and and the football club's history itself which I know you've played a big part in but what'd be great is for people to kind of get an understanding of what your role is at the club first I have started in 1989 as the first um it's called today supporters liaison officer so something was uh, who cares about the, the fans' interests and, and speaking for them and stuff like that. Um, I built up this project, uh, which is now a big thing with seven, eight people working it, but at this time I was alone at the beginning. I did this for eight and a half years, and then I um, did another thing inside the club, and I'm responsible for all the organization stuff around the matches. Uh, I'm the official uh, it's a bad word, but something like security officer. Uh, uh, but it's it's mainly, um, yeah, I'm responsible for, for security stuff as well. Uh, but also for all the organization stuff uh, uh, at the football match with 30,000 people. Big position in the, in the club, if you want, like this. So we're going to talk about the club uh, later on. But what I want to do is talk a little bit about yourself. You were one of the the... the groups i suppose that kind of changed the club's ideology so what i really want to talk about first is growing up you grew up in germany at a time when the country was divided i'm sure there's some young people who are listening to this who never never even knew that germany was east and west so where did you grow up and what kind of upbringing did you have was it kind of like a chilled out relaxed one or was it did you have quite strict parents who didn't allow you to play that kind of heavy music at the time yeah, I think it was a, a quite a normal uh, youth and, and child time in a, a suburb from Cologne in the western part of, of Germany. Uh, but it's just 10 minutes by, by underground to go into the city center of Cologne, stuff like that. And a normal uh, yeah, working class district and a working class family. I, I can remember uh, 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 the first time I, I listened to punk rock. We had a, a partner si- uh, a city in, in England. It's, it was uh, a Leamington Spa. I don't know if you know yeah, that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, that was our partner town. And in our youth, youth club, our youth center, uh, every Saturday we had a disco for teenagers. You know, I was 13, I think. And there was 30 boys and girls from Leamington Spa. And I, I remember we were sitting and staring at the other group, you know how it is in this age, bastards and stuff like that. <laughs> and uh, one of these guys went to the DJ with a yellow uh, a vinyl record. You you can imagine which record it was. It was a, a Sex Pistols, never mind the Bollocks. But uh, we didn't know. We'd never heard about this. And and then they, they played a song and, and these guys were jumping around and stuff like that. We, what? What the fuck, you know? And we, we were smashed with it. And uh, the next week, I went to Cologne to the big record shop and bought my first three uh, punk albums. And then all the shit starts. <laughs> so, what year was that then? When you when you, when you heard the Sex Pistols for the first time? Uh, I, yeah, it must be 1980, I think. Yeah, yeah, it was it was the age of 14, I think, stuff like that. Yeah. So, <clears throat> what were the three albums you bought then? Uh, it was this uh, uh, Nevermind the Bollocks album. It was uh, uh, 
I think it was Dead Kennedys, Fresh Fruits uh, stuff, and uh, uh, from a German band uh, called Hansa Plast. That so, was the first three records. <laughs> so how did you go from Sex Pistols, hearing it for the first time, going to a record store, and all of a sudden you've got Dead Kennedys? Was it talking to the, the to the record store guy and going, I've heard this band, who else should I be listening no, to? I, that, that was a big record supermarket, not a, a single a record shop. Okay. Um, uh, I don't remember. Perhaps, uh, uh, perhaps there was a, a special thing with punk on it, and I looked all through all the the, the records and just decided how the the album looked like or stuff like that. I don't, I don't remember. Was you aware of punk at the time? Like, did you even know what it was, or was it Sex Pistols? And it was like, what's this music? And then someone went, "Oh, this is punk." I don't remember that I heard from from punk before. Uh, and was not interested in it. Uh, but then uh, we collected everything. You, you know, in a youth uh, club, it was usual that there were magazines to read for everybody. And I remember, and every old punk from this time remember these uh, big articles about punk in Berlin uh, with crazy pictures of crazy people. And, you know, at this time, West Berlin in the 80s, uh, 80, 81, big city uh, hundreds of squads and riots and everything and that was the the paradise for us on on the <laughs> on the countryside far away from berlin and yeah not not that far away then i went there the, for the first time i think in in 82 or 83 so how was that experience then going from the countryside to the big city where actually you knew there were going to be a lot more people with the kind of like same musical taste as you as i as i said uh, i lived in Directly near Cologne, so which is a one million people uh, city as well. So uh, there was a, a punk scene everybody knows uh, today, uh, which at this time was a very rough punk scene, very working class, a lot of violence and, and stuff. And uh, we had a lot of trouble with uh, other um, subcultural groups in, in uh, uh, Cologne. It was the Tets. Teddy boys yep. stuff and uh, uh, the the popper, you know, who like these pop music stuff, and with everybody else. So everybody hated us, and it was really dangerous at this time to walk through the streets. And uh, yeah, sometimes we we got yeah smashed up, and uh, we learned to defend ourselves and stuff like that. So it was a good time <laughs> <laughs> because I, I think, <clears throat> especially in that early time, the kind of like. The, the perception of a punk was seen as this person's up to no good, like instantly, no matter how you looked. Do you remember the first time that that happened to you, though? Like, were you dressed up in mohawk, bondage trousers, ripped rip shirts, or, or could you have walked down the street and no one would have known what kind of musical genre you liked because no one was stereotyping you in the same way that it probably did with people who did have the mohawks and bondage trousers. Yeah, it was, uh, uh, in my memory, uh, it was like a public enemy, you know. And uh, if you remember, my, my hometown is a 50,000 people town. So not, not a village, but uh, uh, a bit smaller. And, and my father said to me, well, I, I don't want to see you on streets. If you walk down the streets, I would, I would don't know you and my other uncle and, and, and stuff. They didn't want uh, to have something in common with me. And, but I, I gave a shit about it, of course. <laughs> and, and we were a small gang of seven, eight people in this uh, small town who were hanging around in, in, in the youth club and on the streets. And uh, it was like a, a bit like an adventure mm. to walk on the on the street with a, 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 a 
with some loud music with us and drinking beer with 15 and stuff. But yeah, of course. But um, nothing happened to us in this village. And uh, uh, but in the in the bigger one in Cologne, uh, yeah, something dangerous could happen, of course. Yeah, and it happened. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you remember the first time you went to your first show then and saw like kind of like the violence that can happen? in like watching a band and, and and was that kind of like your next step into punk because obviously listening to it on on record is completely yeah. different than going to see it live yeah uh i think the first one uh was in in bonn our former uh, capital city uh which is also in in the cologne area and it was a, a an open air university festival for free and uh, the band was called Canal Terror, which is one of the most famous German uh, bands from this time. And uh, yeah, that was my first uh, pogo dancing and, and stuff like that. Uh, we had an, um, one older punk in, in our uh, small village, uh, uh, Detlef, he was called. And he took us uh, um, with him and he knew these people in Bonn. So we were not the complete strangers there. But that was my first concert. Um, the, the the nice thing is the the former singer of this band Tommy Molotov he's called is now a colleague from me uh, working for the FC St Pauli as well <laughs> for more than ten years now. Uh, later on he, he was a singer of other bands uh, like Molotov Soda, uh, very well known in, in Germany, and yeah now he's a colleague from me. But that was my my first concert, and then uh, uh, it was not. That long ago, we, we organized our first concerts in our youth club in, in, in Brühl, which uh, was uh, a very big thing. Imagine there's a small town and there's a concert and about 100 punks from Cologne and Bonn were arriving with a train and going to the streets and big scandal and everything. <laughs> and then the, the first big one was uh, the Undertones in, in, uh, in Cologne in a big venue. And then we had a very big uh, squad, uh, a former factory uh, in the southern part of Cologne. And then uh, from 82 and, and so on, we were hanging around there every evening. And uh, there, there were a lot of bands playing Bad Brains, Beat and the Test Tube Babies and, and all this stuff. So were you ever part of the squatter scene then? Did you ever like leave home and, and, and have a go at, at kind of living in the squats or was that not for you? Um, I have never lived uh, in a squad. I've always had my, my own flat, whatever. Um, but I was uh, hanging around in, in them, even in Cologne, uh, in some squads, and have slept there overnight or, or stuff. And also in, in Düsseldorf and later on in, in Hamburg or in Berlin. So, uh, yeah, I was in it, yes. Do you find it unusual that they've seemed to have become quite a tourist attraction now? Especially if you go to Berlin. Like, people want to go and see, like, the, the old kind of uh, punk squats that are going on and see if there's a live show going on there. Yeah, of, of course, there, there's a lot of strange things. If you see what, what uh, people from the past uh, are doing now, uh, uh, especially, for example, in the St. Pauli area where, where I uh, hang around, um, for example, one of our guys, one of my oldest friends, Charlie, uh, uh, he opened later on a, a tattoo shop uh, t tattering and, and piercing stuff and now he's the official and voted uh, and elected speaker of all the businessmen in one part of, <laughs> of Hamburg so he's the re representative of them and uh, also a lot of from these old mates uh, uh, 
now they they own their own pubs and uh, concert venues and, and stuff like that. Uh, uh, you, you, perhaps you remember um, in, in former time, you had to ask other people, can I organize a gig in here, in your venue? And, and in, in the 80s, uh, most of these people were former long hair hippies from the 68 movement and they had their own pubs and, and venues, but you, are, you had to ask them. But later on, uh, we and, and our colleagues opened our own business things. And, and if you know, look around, loads of my former mates are working in the music. Yeah, I would say music industry. They go on tour with big bands, uh, not only punk bands, also hip hop and, and other things. And they are a, a big part of the um, music scene and, and live music stuff all over all over the world. Yeah. And it's, yeah, they own restaurants and, and all these uh, own hostels and, and stuff. Uh, it's, it's crazy, but I think it's a part of normal life. But it's, it's very funny when we sit together and remember the old times with no money and nothing and just <laughs> hang around. And now, yeah, businessmen without feeling like a businessman. Yeah. You know what I mean? We, we, we do this and we pay people and we... Uh, uh, yeah, give give work to people and and stuff, but it's yeah, it's, it's quite normal. But funny if you remember the these old times with shouting around no future and stuff. And now, thirty thirty five years later, yeah, we are on we are our own future. <laughs> <laughs> I've kind of spoke about this off mic. Like, we're going to talk about football. And for me, football's a huge part of my life. It's probably second to punk music of my love. And I grew up in Nottingham, so I took my local team as my club. Were you at any point a Cologne fan? Yeah, sure. Uh, I was, uh, as every kid in my area, uh, uh, I was a, a fan from, from FC Cologne in, in my childhood. And I. Uh, never forget when we won the Duvel, so cup and, and championship in, in 78. I went with my father to, to, uh, to the team. And the nice thing is they won this uh, championship in 78 with a 5-0 uh, away win at St. Pauli. <laughs> uh, when St. Pauli was uh, one year in, in, in the Bundesliga, first Bundesliga in, in 78. Uh, yeah, that, that was a nice time. But... Uh, later on, when all this uh, punk thing came, I, I started to think about political things. And then I recognized what a bunch of assholes was standing around me in the stadium. Uh, loads of yeah Nazis singing songs against Jews and blacks and, and whatever. Uh, you know, when you are 13 or 14, you don't uh, ask about it. It's Everything is normal. But when we started... Um, going around dressed like like punk rockers we got some trouble in there so we uh, i and a lot i know a lot of others stopped going to football because it was uh, too dangerous it was full of uh, nazis and hooligans how how did you end up in hamburg then because you were saying you were living in cologne and then berlin for uh, a you, little while uh, and then at, at this time we, we had to go uh, every young man had to go to the army 
uh, for yeah, one and a half, two years, uh, uh, or you decide I don't go to the army and then you had to do this uh, civil service. Uh, uh, and normally it's in hospitals and uh, with old people and stuff like that. And I decided to go uh, to Hamburg and I worked for 20 months uh, in a um, sailor's home, uh, which is organized by the church, but it was a, like a hotel for sailors with 140 beds in the St. Pauli area. Yeah, and I, I went there with my red spikes, hair and stuff, and, and I worked with the sailors, uh, which is uh, very close to the football fans because the, the sailors, the seamen, are inside their heart, in my experience, a very conservative thinking too. And when they uh, were all hanging around in the, in the uh, entrance area of this sailor's home drinking beer and they saw me, yeah, it was strange. And yeah until my first single uh, uh, night shift uh, when I had a fight with another guy. And then they said, ah, you're a good guy. You are a good fighter, a good man. So, so that, uh, <laughs> you have to yeah, but, but you know, it, it is like it is. They, they, they were thinking before, I think, what, what a crazy asshole is this? Look at this hair and, and stuff. And then a drunken guy uh, started some trouble with me and I, kicked him and uh, then everything was fine <laughs> <laughs> um so during that time then when you were working uh at that the, at the with the sailors were you also still putting on punk shows in hamburg was that something you were still trying to do at yeah sure uh, and that was uh, uh, one of the main reasons uh, to go to hamburg because this civil service thing meant um if you had uh, if you found a job uh, um, in another city they pay for it they, they paid uh, uh, the government paid for your old flat in your hometown and gave you a free train ticket to the town you worked. And then you had your own private flat over there. So it's, uh, it was a very good chance to go to another city for a while, for one and a half, two years, and then they'll go, go back without any loss. In my case, uh, yeah, I, I finished my work here and, and stayed in Hamburg and, and didn't go. And, 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 of, and of course, one of the reasons was that Hamburg had a great punk rock scene with a lot of gigs and squads and everything. So it was very interesting for me to go. So, so when you were going to shows then, were people talking about football at shows? Um, of course, at this time, it was most the other Hamburg club, uh, which was very big and successful. And, and St. Pauli was very small at this time. But in the middle of the 80s, St. Pauli was, was growing and the, the um, average crowd went up from about 3,000, 4,000 up to uh, 20,000 with a promotion in the uh, Bundesliga in 1988. It was uh, like we were hanging around in a pub one evening and uh, someone uh, told me from my friends, yeah, tomorrow, uh, do you want to come with us to football? I said, what? To football? What football? No? And he said, yeah, we go to St. Pauli tomorrow said, on, a, on a Sunday afternoon. He said, what? To St. Pauli football? Isn't it dangerous? No, no, it's, it's, it's cool over there. And, and then I went there the next day. Yeah, and it was cool. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there was a small, small bunch of, of uh, people from the squatters and punk scene, uh, uh, not behind the goals. It was on the sideline uh, terracing. That was the, in the middle, the, the meeting point of us. At this time, it was 30, 40, 50 people not more uh, but that was that was the beginning and yeah it was was peaceful no no violence no no right-wing stuff um, against us at this moment later on we got some trouble but uh, at this uh, Sunday afternoon it was very nice and for me it was yeah great uh, there is a 
there's a stadium I can watch football and uh, yeah my my forgotten love football was uh, was new you born sull'orlo di una strada una gara di follia contro il sipario amaro della xenofobia canti d'agonismo di emozioni da spartir di cori lastricati di coscienza e da venir basta sulla storia di giorni conquistati figli della memoria pirati a San Paolo danzano sulla gloria di giorni conquistati figli della memoria banditi a San Paolo I know in the 80s in the UK in particular football fans were seen publicly by the public and also by government in the UK as racist homophobic fucks from what I understand is from what I'm hearing from you that was kind of saying what yeah, was going exactly. on in Germany how did it then become that these this group of 50 punks kind of set its roots in changing the ideology of a club that already had 10 15000 supporters going to see it week in week out i mean how do you even start yeah. to do that uh, there was no plan to act like this so we didn't uh, stick together and say okay we go into a stadium and in two years we have changed this club and we blah 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 no that wasn't it was just a a, a thing for sunday afternoon second division football drinking beer smoking marijuana and have a good time but um, then the club had plans to build a new stadium. Uh, it was called Sports Dome. And uh, it was like one of these new stadia with uh, all-seater stadium with a hotel in it and Congress, blah, blah stuff. And um, of course, we were against these plans because yeah, we love terraces and, and all this stuff. And also the neighborhood, uh, uh, which was not... 100% into football, they were against these plans too because they were fearing uh, uh, rising rents for their homes and, and other uh, uh, tourist shit and, and stuff like that. So um, we uh, started, uh, we founded a, a protest group, an activity group against these plans. And uh, because we, we came from the political scene, from the squatter scene and anti-fascist uh, scene, uh, we, we knew about how to write leaflets and how to organize a discussion evening and all this shit was our normal life. And, uh, yeah, we, we made the first uh, leaflet at the stadium and also these, um, yeah, more right wing or conservative or just normal people said, Oh, hey, these crazy looking guys from the Hafenstraße squad, which was a big symbol for, violence at this time uh, they are looking crazy but hey they are on the right side and they are fighting for my interest as a football supporter as well and so we we got more and more contacts into the normal football supporter scene at the poly at this time and had a big coalition and um yeah that was a fight for six seven months with uh, a lot of activities never seen before at football we made a demonstration which ended uh, before a home match at the stadium with 1500 people on a friday uh, afternoon uh, and then we had another protest activity a silence protest beginning <coughs> with a kickoff whistle of the referee uh, everybody should be uh, silent absolutely silent in the, in the whole stadium to show how it will be in an all-seater ground and uh, uh, that was so successful, uh, 
we, we said it should be five minutes. In, in reality, it was three and a half, but it was a sensation. And the media, uh, of course, no internet and stuff at this time, but the normal media were full of it. And um, yeah, finally, we won the struggle. The, the plans uh, uh, for this new stadium uh, uh, were thrown away. The Canadian investors went away and we won this struggle. And um, we, we, but we, we saw, hey, we, we have influence. If we want, we have influence what's going here in this stadium. And then um, from this power, uh, we founded the, the first fanzine uh, uh, magazine. It's, it was called the Millantor Raw and uh, it was published the first time in July 1989. And so that was our instrument to, yeah, to, to have more work in, in all this. And we started uh, activities against racism at football because there was another thing in, in 89 in the summer when Nuremberg played uh, at our stadium. We had some monkey noises in the stadium and we were very uh, angry about it. Uh, we didn't get this boys who did this um, but uh, we made another leaflet we went to the club hey let's make something against it and um, at the next time when there was a club playing at our stadium with a black player at this time there were not so many black players in Bundesliga um, so two or three months later another club with a black player came I think it was Düsseldorf with Anthony Buffo and uh, we, we published this leaflet at this time and it was uh, signed from all players with uh, all players signed this anti-racism leaflet. Uh, so that was another big success. Yeah. And we, we fought for cheaper prices, uh, cheaper tickets uh, for unemployed people. At this time, you got cheaper price when you uh, are a, a student or a um, What is it? When you are too old to work, uh, I don't know the, the word. Um, uh, yeah, retired. Yeah, yeah. For, for these people. And if you are in the army, then you got cheaper tickets. And we said, this is bullshit. There are so many unemployed people. They, it's necessary to give them these cheap tickets also. Yeah, and we won this struggle, this struggle also. And, and stuff like that. So uh, we got more and more uh, influence uh, with this magazine. And Yeah, the next step then was that, that I was asked to do this first job as a supporters liaison officer because the, the Hamburg fan project was existing only at the other Hamburg club and they said we must do something at St. Pauli as well. So, um, yeah, everything was growing. We opened the first fan laden, which is um, like where you can go every day to meet and, and buy away tickets and some self-produced merchandise and stuff like that and so we got more and more people more and more influence and yeah it was was growing <laughs> so how much of a fight then did you have from like the right wing of the group or, or possibly the far right wing of the group like challenging you seeing that there's this left-wing organization kind of taking over our club and we don't agree with their progressive movement i mean was there a battle going on there Most of the left-wing scene today is acting. We started with talking to them. Uh, I remember uh, very long away trips, eight hours by train to Munich and stuff like that. We were hanging around in the train, drinking beer, and uh, had a lot of discussions. When one of these guys was saying, uh, get all these foreigners out, they, they are stealing my job or they're stealing my flat or stuff we said ah you are talking bullshit uh, who is stealing the, your uh, job this is not the, the turkish guy from next door it's the uh, fucking the big bosses and the companies and all these discussions like that and um i think we we got a, a 
great big number of these people on our side by talking. They said, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah, you are right. Yeah, I never thought about like this. And, and I was grown up in another uh, uh, society in Hamburg, blah, blah, blah. Um, but there was still one group uh, uh, who acted like uh, Nazis. Um, they, were, they were too stupid to be organized Nazis. They were just a bunch of idiots, you know, but uh, they were um, abusing uh, foreign people, black people on the street and stuff like that. And we had some trouble with them, uh, but uh, it exploded uh, during the World Championship 1990. Um, uh, at, uh, I think, after the half-final or the final, I don't remember, uh, we were attacked in our pub near the Reeperbahn Red Light District area. I think three, four hundred, I don't remember, uh, right-wing hooligans were attacking us, and we were just with 30, 40 guys in the, in the pub. Uh, and we saw some of these St. Pauli fans inside these mob attacking us, together with Hamburg as V fans and other assholes. <coughs> Nothing serious happened at this evening, but we said, so now uh, uh, that was too much. And um, yeah, one week later, they got a visit in, in their pub and uh, their, this group was uh, history after this. So they, they got hammered uh, and uh, we, we said to them, so your time at St. Paul is over. Uh, you can go there, but we never want to hear any single word from you. You are so silent, and if not, we come to your end uh, behind the goal, and uh, you got smashed. And yeah, finally, it was a, a violent answer, yes, uh, but it was at the end, it was uh, necessary and, and successful. club in Hamburg then did they are they perceived then to be quite right or is it kind of not seen like as left versus right are they just seen as just the bigger club who has more corporate power I suppose today or in the past uh, today yeah I suppose today because the 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 law of FC Pauli is is the fact that you are seen as this left-wing very actively political club yeah. whereabouts I think you're very unique in that especially in the UK football clubs do not get political at all which i think is a shame but in germany like do you have politics all the time in football is that again unique just to your club i think st pauli uh, was the first club to act like this and and uh, i i remember all these discussions even at the at the football association in frankfurt at big meetings uh, uh, you are bringing the politics into football that was the normal abuse to us uh, you are destroying the sport uh, with bringing politics into football we said oh fuck off you know the fucking nazis has been in football before us and you didn't do anything they were waving their fucking swastika flags and everything wasn't that political, you bastards, you know? And uh, so it was easy to argue against that, you know? Um, but also, uh, St. Pauli as a club past realized, yeah, we have to, to act uh, because we have a, a, 
we have something to do with our neighborhood. And when our neighborhood has some problems, we have to be on their side. We are not uh, isolated as a football club. We are part of society and we are responsible for the surrounding society. And uh, in the first years, of course, also, also the, the football association or other clubs said, ah, you are crazy with your politics. But uh, then they saw how successful it was also for the club, uh, not only for the political thing, also for the club uh, to be seen as a as a club which is, yeah, I'm responsible for my society and I will act and I'm in solidarity with, with homeless people, with whatever. And uh, then more and more clubs did the same things. Not that much as St. Pauli until now, but uh, all the clubs nowadays, they have their uh, uh, social, uh, what is it called, um, corporate uh, social responsibility stuff yeah. and, and doing things like that. In the past, in Hamburg, you could say Hamburg as we as fucking right wing, a lot of boneheads, skinheads stuff, and, and St. Pauli is left wing. Nowadays, it has changed. There are still Nazis at the Hamburg club, but they are silent. The uh, the ultra groups in in the in the end uh, they are uh, most of them are stri strictly anti-fascist and there are some big anti-fascist demonstrations where you see both ultra groups working not side on side but on the same demonstration so uh, that has changed a lot at, at the other club that's that's very great because I I, I suppose. Around the world, I, politically, I see it as like the the right and the far right. It seems to be growing. Their their voice seems to be getting stronger. I mean, yeah. in Germany, I know you got the AFD um, seem to be gaining power in local areas. Has that not infiltrated then into onto the terraces? And I suppose in, my question really is then: as as FC Pauli kind of go to away games, have you seen an increase in violence towards a club that? is actively uh, left-wing, has its politics on its sleeve. Yeah, sure. Especially when, when we, as St. Pauli, we have uh, away matches, especially in East Germany, former East Germany. Uh, there are some clubs who have a strictly fucking Nazi following. And, and the clubs over there often, uh, they just say, yeah, we are against racism, blah, blah. But the reality is, is another thing. But um, nowadays, uh, uh, all these stories are going public on public very fast. If there is a right wing following, blah, one hour later, you see all these pictures on the Internet. Uh, that was different in the past. In my uh, young time in, in the 80s, no Internet, nothing. If we got hammered in, in the East, nobody listened to us. And, and we said there was no police or there was police, but they didn't help us and stuff like that when we played in Rostock and Chemnitz and Dresden and, and all this. Um, but uh, the, I think the good thing in German football is um, that um, the leading groups are the ultra groups today. And, and uh, that's another kind of football culture. I was grown up with other kind of football culture, but now it's the ultra thing. You can say, oh, I don't like this uh, uh, singer in front of the crowd and, and singing 90 minutes. You can have your own opinion, but the thing is, they are, most of them are minimum anti-racist. Some of them are strictly uh, left, with left politics. Some are right-wings, but most of them 
from the big clubs like Frankfurt and Bayern Munich and and others, they are uh, they have strong anti-fascist ultra uh, uh, groups. With um, they are also going on on demonstrations and did a lot of uh, social work and and stuff like that. Um, I think that has to do something that nowadays a lot of intelligent young people go to football. When I was 14 and and, and when I was growing up in, in Cologne. I would say most of the people in the, on the terraces were, were not students, you know, just pure working class. And I, nothing against these people, but uh, there was not that much intelligence. In, in, you know what I mean? Uh, just, just normal people. And nowadays, you have a lot of uh, um, very intelligent with, with uh, um, students uh, leading these ultra groups and and so and, and of course when you are, have a bunch of intelligent people they are not that much into fucking racist politics and and i think that has something to do with the change into the football scene it, it's not everything uh, brilliant at this time there are still too many racists and, and fascists and football but it's nothing against the 80s and and when there was uh, when there is some riots today with ultras and the the fucking media saying oh never seen such a riot we old bastards say what where, where have you been in the 80s you must have seen all these riots around the stadium in the 80s that is nothing all this shit what is happening today is nothing against the riots of the 80s but nobody can believe this no. I mean, you, everyone... you remember the, the 80s in English football, you know, I, I have seen this uh, Manchester United and Cologne and stuff. Wow, what crazy guys were coming over just looking for fights and, and stuff like that. No? Well, I mean, the impact of the 80s still plays a part in the UK that we can't even have terraces still because that, of rioting. That, that was your fault. We, we saw yeah. to, our, to our English uh, uh, colleagues, you know, we had uh, a lot of contacts with the people from when saturday comes and and other magazines and we had talks when when english football was threatened with this all seater grounds we said hey you must resist you must resist do something but i think it's part of english society that uh, big protest was not uh, the thing at this time and later on they said to us yeah you were right now the culture is, is dead I, I think it was the ch- is the fact that we had to push back against what happened in Hillsborough, and because so many people died at Hillsborough, I think people thought, okay, if if we have seating, Hillsborough will never happen again. And what eventually came out was it wasn't because of terracing, it was because of bad policing practice. That's sure. why, unfortunately, those those people died. And and now there's there's so much more want to have terraces or safe standing, as it's called in the UK. Yeah. And 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 it, I think it, I think you're correct. I think it's something that takes away the atmosphere from going to a game, um, especially. Uh, I, I apologize for the people who are listening to this for about punk, um, especially for the people who go and watch like Arsenal or Man United or, or these mega clubs who have 80, 90,000 seat a stadium. Sometimes you get an atmosphere, but you get a better atmosphere going to a, a club like Luton Town. who's a small club with yeah. 10,000 supporters, but it's a more old fashioned club. So you, you kind of get that atmosphere that you kind of get told as a kid is the reason that you go to football. But I suppose actually that that kind of is kind of leads into the same question though. Man United Arsenal are seen as kind of um tourist clubs. Is there ever a fear 
because of how popular your club has become, tourists like myself who might go to a game will change the ideology of what the club is. E.g. also rising prices, because if tourists comes along, they might be willing to pay more for a ticket. Yes, um, it is in, in some points, because it's reality that uh, there's a lot of people coming to our club who wants to see a match and have a nice weekend at St. Pauli. As you know, St. Pauli is not only... Uh, football, it's a red light district, a lot of alternative music venues, concerts, uh, no curfew in the pubs. Uh, if when, when Corona is over, <laughs> the, the pubs are open again and you can drink all night long for cheap prices and stuff like that. So it's very interesting for people to have a weekend in, in Hamburg. But please tell all your friends, we hate this fucking English stack weekends coming over. <laughs> we hate them. We hate them. Everybody hates British stack weekends coming over. But um, but we have no rising prices because of tourists. Um, I think other clubs are um, jealous. Is this jealous? Uh, um, yeah, yeah, jealous, yeah. Because we, we earn a lot of money with merchandising. And of course, the tourists uh, are bringing their money to our merchandising shop and giving us money, which is a good thing for the club, especially uh, when you see that we uh, decided uh, our members, our annual member meeting, you know, German clubs are organized as a members club. So we have yep. 30,000 members and on the annual meeting, everything's decided. We decided, for example, not uh, the, the name of the stadium is not for sale. So it's always the Millentor Stadium, uh, like ever before. And it's not called the blah, blah, uh, uh, Emirates uh, Stadium or whatever, you know. It's not for sale. That means, in, in fact, we lose 1, 1.5 million uh, euro a year for not selling the name. Uh, and before the match, for example, we have no uh, entertainment on the pitch not before the match and not on, at halftime, no sponsored uh, paid uh, shit on the, on the pitch at halftime entertainment. We said, no, nah, that has nothing to do with football. We, we don't want it. The, the uh, eight minutes before the kickoff, we have no advertising uh, uh, in the stadium because we decided, oh, let's the fans start their singing and let's get warm for, for the match. And we don't... Uh, you you could sell the the last minutes before kickoff for high prices to any advertising things, but we decided no, we don't want it. So it's more pure football. And um, uh, at other stadia, you get all these also these announcements. The next corner is presented by blah blah company. You know, we <laughs> yeah. we don't have all this, but that means we lose a lot of money. And but on the other hand, we have a lot of money coming with this merchandise stuff. The difference is nobody must buy merchandise. It's your free choice. But if you are as a fan in the stadium, it's not your choice if there's fucking advertising, an entertainment show at halftime. You can't go away. You must listen to this bullshit, you know? Um, so I think it's it's fair how St. Pauli is acting in, in this question. But um, to come back to your question, it's no problem to have these tourists. It's not in that numbers uh, and the prices are still very cheap. I can remember the first time I went and watched uh, Football of America. I went to go and watch the Colorado Rapids and I could, uh, there was a throw-in happening. And just like you said, they announced that the throwing was sponsored by Coca-Cola. 
And I felt like rioting at that moment in time because they have taken football, something that I love so much, and packaged it and advertised it in such a disgusting way that they decided to sponsor a throwing. I was like, what the fuck is this? Anyway, um, so talking about merchandise, then, because the kind of like the, the, the image that is known for your club is the skull and crossbones. And I understand that that's actually that that came about from a drunk punk uh, kind of stealing a flag and bringing it to the football club. Is that correct? And if that's so, can you tell that story? Yeah, that that's a story. Uh, you must know at this time there was no merchandising existing. You know, there were uh, in the in the ticket office there was I think one scarf uh, also with the German colors on it uh, and uh, one cap and some stickers that was all no merchandising existing um and uh, when we opened the the fan laden the fan project we 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 decided yeah let's start our own thing and um we we uh, uh, produced the first t-shirts and stickers against uh, right wing stuff and um one of these squatters is called doc mabuse uh, living in a, a Big Hafenstrasse squads. Uh, uh, yeah, that's right. After one match, he was on this. Uh, um, is it a fair, a ca- like a carnival next to the yep. stadium? It's it's uh, three times a year for four weeks. It's directly beside the stadium. He, he went on there and he, he got one of these uh, skull and crossbone flags. And next match, he took it uh, with him into the stadium. And um, then the the history starts. Like uh, at this time, the skull and crossbone flag was the symbol of the squatters movement also like um, the poor against the rich uh, the fight of the poor people against the industry and, and, and the rich people and especially in Hamburg uh, the, uh, there is a very famous uh, pirate from the middle age called Klaus Störtebeker and the legend says he robbed the uh, and gave it to the poor which I think was bullshit but uh, the legend says like this uh, but then the symbol became a symbol for St. Pauli uh, as a, just uh, promoted into first Bundesliga in 1988. Uh, now we are the very small club. Uh, do you remember? Just four people working in the club's office at this time and, and everything was rotten stadium and everything. And now we play against uh, Hamburg SB, Bayern Munich, and we are like the pirates uh, fighting against all the rich clubs. That was starting that. But there was no marketing company who has uh, uh, founded this idea. It was, yeah, from us. We, we uh, uh, adopted this skull and crossbow symbol as our symbol. And uh, it was all produced in the first years on a, in an independent way, just from supporters for supporters. Um, later on, uh, the, the fan project sold the, the right to produce the skull and crossbow stuff to the club. And the club is still paying money a year to the fan project to have the right to produce this thing. And now everybody knows uh, the skull and crossbone thing is a, it's like an industry. You know, you can buy in the merchandise shop what, stuff for the dog and, and everything in different colors with the skull and crossbones. Of course, it's a merchandising industry nowadays, but the roots are absolutely independent and, uh, uh, it, it was clear in this first years, if you see every, anywhere in, in the world, an, another guy with a skull and crossbones with St. Pauli on it, this must be a fine guy, must be 
anti-racist and everything. Nowadays, it can happen that you meet a fucking asshole wearing this club shirt, you know, because he's <laughs> just a fucking drunken asshole, you know. Don't yeah. know. But the, the roots were uh, absolutely independent. It was founded by ourselves. That's right. That image is now used like within punk music because I know you did a line with Alkaline Trio about she did kind of like uh, the, the club and Alkaline Trio merch and you've also done it with Anti-Flag. And it seems that bands have adopted the football club as well. So you've got bands like A's and Dub Foundation, Gaslight Anthems, Turbo Negro. I mean, Bad Religion played a charity match against uh, SC Pauly. Um, yeah. it, it just seems to be that for some reason, punk is attracted to, to, to the club. Do you understand why that is? Like, is it something that the club purposely tries to market or is it just something that, that bands see this, this club and just want to be part of the, the cult status of it? Um, I think that has to do with uh, what I said uh, a couple of minutes before. Loads of, of musicians and people working in the music business are going to St. Pauli from the 80s when we were young, drunken punks. Now we work in this thing. So, for example, there's uh, one guy who's uh, going on tour with Bad Religion in, in Germany, for example. And then they are talking and, are oh, you are interested in football? Yeah, I go to St. Pauli. Oh, we have an off day next weekend. Let's visit the club. And it, it's working like this. So there are lot, loads of uh, context because... I think hundreds of musicians uh, are a regular season ticket holder in, in St. Pauli. So we we know each other and and very short way. If you remember uh, when we had our 100 year anniversary 10 years ago, we we, we made a, a big open air festival in the in the stadium with uh, Pantheon Rococo from Mexico playing and and the Wakes from from Glasgow and and uh, loads of bands. Uh, which we know they are real fans. They are not uh, uh, in solidarity with the club for marketing reasons. They are with us uh, in their hearts because we know them personally and not on a on a business way, you know. And yeah, so so it comes that there's a lot of relationships with, with bands, and and so we do a lot of things, which also brings money. Of course, if you produce a T-shirt with blah blah bad religion and St. Pauli. You you must not buy it, but if anybody wants to buy it and helps the club and the band, yeah, why not? No problem with it. So how important is it that the club does stick to this kind of punk ideology moving forward? Because we're in a time where perhaps fans can't go to games, so clubs need to get their income some other way. Is there any danger that if this virus continues for two, three years, hopefully it doesn't, could the ideology of what the club is about change because it has to to survive um i don't know what the future will bring us but um what i know is that there is an absolutely big solidarity uh from not only from the from the fans and the season ticket holders also from the surrounding society uh, they helped us in 2003 when we were nearly bankrupt uh, there has been a loads of solidarity activities in the area uh, to help the club. And finally, it was successful. We sold 140,000 T-shirts uh, uh, for the club and, and we got the money we need at this time. And I'm sure if something serious like this would happen now during this Corona times, uh, things like that uh, would help us more than, than other clubs. 
because the solidarity is, is big like that. And um, but I'm also sure that we 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 don't need this uh, uh, financial help from from the fans. They helped us in the last months of the last season when they said, "Ah, oh, no." So the big majority of the people said, "I don't want to uh, my money back from the from the uh, season ticket." They said, "No, no, it's okay, get it." You know? um, and the, and the same right now. We we sold also like every year our fifteen thousand season tickets, uh, and the people know that they can't go to the matches for other three, four, five, six months. Nobody knows, but nobody is asking for for money. And uh, nowadays we are better organized inside the club, uh, so our financial control system is, is better as in the past. And now we are, yeah, we are like a professional uh, organized <laughs> club. Uh, uh, yeah, punk roots, blah blah blah. But um, we, it's it's a normal football club, you know. But um, the punk ideology inside this club, without uh, be people looking like punk workers, is uh, yeah, stay rude and and open your mouth and say what you want. Don't be afraid of uh, going into trouble with stronger enemies. Uh, you know our chairman Oke Göttlich, which is a uh, 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 music uh, um, businessman as well, not with punk rock, with other more electronic stuff, but that's his uh, his business background. He's now part of the leading group of the German Football Association. He's elected as uh, as one of the leaders, so we are uh, in in the heart of the enemy. And Frankfurt <laughs> was was one of our <laughs> our guys, if you want, like this. Uh, yeah, but some party will survive this Corona shit. I'm sure. Well, I hope so because I hope to get over uh, once this is over. Because I, I I it was it's just one of those clubs on my list of that I want to go and watch. Um, Sven, yeah, thank are, you for talking. You are you are invited uh, all the time. I definitely, I'll definitely uh, make sure that happens. Sven, thank you for talking to me, pal. Thank you very much. Ole, 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 ole. Thank you so much to Sven for taking the time to chat to me. And thank you to FC St. Pauli for supporting this DIY podcast and offering Sven as an interview. Uh, once this COVID shit is over, I'm 100% going to a game. At the start of the podcast, you would have heard the jolly fuckers uh, who sponsored this episode of the podcast. For that, I thank them. Make sure you go check out their work by clicking the link in this episode description or just gather a little Google and I'm sure you'll find them. Like all past sponsors, the Jolly Fuckers didn't pay a single penny to sponsor the podcast. If you are working on a project that is within the punk subculture, that can be music, poetry, zine, clothing, it doesn't matter. You can have a spot at the top of this podcast to sell yourself or whatever it is that you want to sell for free. To do that, just email punksinpubs at gmail.com. And when we start back up in October, uh, you can be at the start of the podcast uh, chatting just like the Jolly Fuckers did. Right, let's wrap this up. Thank you for tuning in to this past season of the podcast. Uh, I think we've had some excellent guests during a very difficult time. We've gone from going to pubs, interviewing people face-to-face, over uh, to doing interviews over a laptop. Something that, at the start of the podcast, 
I didn't want to do. I had so many offers to talk to quite big bands, but they wanted to do it over Skype or now Zoom. And I just try to get away from it. I don't. I don't think you get that kind of connection that you get over a beer talking to the person face to face so i think we've made the best out of a difficult situation i hope you've enjoyed uh, the episodes that we provided if you have enjoyed it please go slap five stars on itunes review you don't even need to leave a comment uh, just put at the stars it really helps people find the podcast and it then it helps the podcast grow so over the time we're away please go do that it only literally takes a minute not even that so go do that support the podcast it doesn't cost you anything right i'm out black lives matter trump and boris don't give a shit about you and always question authority till the end of october bye bye